for 40 years. And the reality, though, is that the people that this book was written to knew all of those things as well. And so the book of Exodus is not really just a pure history. I don't know if there's a better word for it, but it's not a history book in the sense of we think history of it telling us the story of what happened. Peter Enns says this. He says, the story of Exodus is designed to tell us what God is like, how he thinks of his people, the links he will go to to deliver them, and the proper responses of God's people to this great deed. This is the goal of Exodus, is to show us the nature of God. One professor said that when you're studying the narratives of the Old Testament, one of the key questions to ask is, what does this tell me about God? What is God telling me about himself in this text? And that's what we see is the character of God and what he's willing to do for his people. This idea of it not being just a pure history is reflected when we look at it. If you consider the fact that in the first three books, or three chapters, sorry, the first three chapters of Exodus cover roughly 80 years, and the rest of it covers somewhere around 40. If you consider that there is three chapters from pre-Moses to Moses' calling, and there's somewhere around five or six chapters covering the plagues, there's an unbalance there. It's not balanced in the amount of time that it spends with all of the details. There are a lot of questions that are left unanswered. There are a lot of questions that scholars spend a lot of time arguing and ultimately don't make a difference when we look at this idea of what is it that God is revealing about himself. We can understand what God is revealing about himself through Exodus without knowing who the Pharaoh was or without knowing where Mount Sinai is specifically, or without knowing the specific journey that they took through the wilderness for 40 years, or without knowing which body of water they really crossed. Because those are all questions that are really left unanswered when you start digging into the historical facts of what happened. And so, because of this, application isn't always you should do this and you shouldn't do this. Or you, you should look both ways before you cross the road. Because sometimes the application is more along the lines of telling us how we should think and how we should view the world and how we understand what it means to be a child of God. But the reality is how we think determines how we live. And it determines the way that we act. If we think that God has forgiven us and shown us great love through the death of Christ on the cross, then we begin to live that out by loving other people. If we think that our brakes aren't going to work when we push down on the brake pedal, that's going to change the way that we drive our car. What we think and how we think determines how we live. So, we're going to jump into the book of Exodus. It starts with the Israelites having been abandoned by God, which is the title of the sermon this morning. We're going to be in chapter 1. It's page 45 in the Pew Bibles if you want to turn there. As you're turning there, it's pertinent to note that there is a strong connection between Exodus and Genesis. In fact, Nahum Sarna says that it is incomprehensible apart from Genesis. 
We, we have to have at least a rudimentary understanding of what happens in Genesis in order for us to begin to understand what's taking place in Exodus. You don't notice this in our English translations, but the first word of the Hebrew in Exodus is the Hebrew word wa, W-A-W, which translates and. That word directly links this scripture, this book, to what happens in Genesis. That and links these two directly. And so as we read chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, notice how the Israelites have been abandoned by God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. The midwives, <clears throat> the midwives, whoa, sorry. There we go. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives to them, to, called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Right away, we see the connections to Genesis. But I want to jump down to verse 7 for a moment. Because verse 7 takes us back to Genesis 1. There were 70 people, the author tells us, that journeyed to Egypt in Israel's family. 70 people. But then in verse 7, we see that they were fruitful and multiplied. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1. Israel is fulfilling the creation mandate that they had. 
But Pharaoh isn't too happy about that. Verse 8 further ties this to Genesis because of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph got to Egypt because he was a slave. His brothers were mad. They were jealous. They sold him into slavery. He was taken to Egypt and had a series of roller coaster events that went up and down and up and down. And his life was one big depressing roller coaster ride. But he was sent as a slave. And he even says that you intended it for my harm, but God intended it for good. He was sent as a slave, but God's purpose was in order to save Egypt and his family from famine. And you'll remember that one of the things that happens is he gets thrown into prison, and then he becomes a servant, and then he gets in trouble because Potiphar's wife is wanting him to sleep with her, and he doesn't want to do that, so he flees, and she grabs his cloak, and then she says that he tried to, and he gets thrown in prison. And then Pharaoh starts having these dreams and needs someone to interpret them. And one of the guys remembers, hey, when I was in prison, there was this guy that told me what my dreams meant. And he comes and tells Pharaoh there are going to be years of abundance, but then there are going to be years of famine. And this is how you should prepare for it. And so Pharaoh sets him in charge of all of this in order to prepare for the years of famine. And so as the years of famine hit, Israel is being hit by this famine, and they journey to Egypt to find relief. And then they're reunited with their brother, and they bring their dad, and they all move to Egypt because Pharaoh is indebted to Joseph. And Pharaoh basically gives Joseph everything that he wants. And that is how Israel gets to Egypt. But now there is a new Pharaoh, and he is more intimidated by the numbers of the Israelites than he is committed to the history and honoring what the Israelites did for Egypt. He he fails to remember that if it wasn't for the Israelites, there would be no Egypt. And so Pharaoh has three, three options for managing the control of the population and trying to keep that from going out of control. But what you'll notice is that all three attempts are failures. The third one, we don't read about the failure until chapter two. But if you notice, all three of these attempts are thwarted not by God's intervention through something miraculous. In fact, these these thwarted attempts of Pharaoh are never attributed to God. The first one is the oppression. In verse 12, they're, they're growing and he fears them. So he says, put them under heavy burdens. Make them work really hard. Then they'll be too tired to have more kids and repopulate and expand and multiply and fill the nation. But what's crazy is the more they work and the harder they're pushed, the more they multiply. The harder their slave drivers work them, the more children they have. And so then he says, okay, have the midwives kill all of the male children that are born, but let the female children live. And the the midwives, it says they feared God, so that's why they didn't do this. But when Pharaoh asks them, they don't say, well, my religion says that I shouldn't do this. They, They come up with some explanation that the Hebrew wives are more tough than the Egyptian wives. The Egyptian wives are wimpy and they they don't really know how to handle birth, but those Hebrew women, they're just pushing them out. They push them out before the doctor can get there to deliver. 
God does honor that, but it's not attributed to him. And then there's the second attempt of infanticide, which is when Pharaoh says, throw all of the male infants into the river Nile. And even Moses' deliverance is due to his mom and his sister being having ingenuity. It's not done by a mighty act of God. In fact, think about how crazy it would be for one of us to say, hey, let's go set your newborn baby in a basket and float them down the Wabash in order for, the, for them to live. Anybody want to try that? I'm not going to. Now, now we can see there are some hints of God being there because some of these things work. But nowhere does the author attribute this to God. Nowhere does he say, God split the Red Sea and delivered them in this chapter. It all seems to be the work of the people. And so the Israelites have to have felt abandoned by God. There is no way to get around feeling abandoned by God in the midst of this. They're crying out, how could God let this happen to them? Many estimate that it's another 80 years before Moses shows up on the scene to deliver them. Think about it for a minute. Most say that it's somewhere, and they do this based on backtracking from how old Moses was, but most say that from the birth of Moses in chapter 2 to him fleeing to Midian after he kills one of the Egyptian servants is 40 years. And then it's another 40 years in Midian. So he's 80 years old before he has the burning bush incident in chapter 3. So where we are today in chapter 1 is 80 years away from Moses encountering a burning bush. There still isn't any light at the end of the tunnel for them. They had to have felt abandoned by God. And this abandon by God is not a unique situation to Israel and Egypt. In fact, in Psalm 22, the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. Israel and Egypt, is not, it's not unique to them to feel that abandonment by God. And the reality is that we feel this abandonment too. We may try to say that we don't because it's not the right answer. If someone said, has God ever abandoned you? You would say no because the right answer is no. And you want to have that right Sunday school answer. And so you're going to say no. But the reality is every time we ask questions like, how could God let this happen if he loved me? How could, could a good God let good things happen to evil people and evil things happen to good people? Why didn't God intervene or why doesn't God intervene? If all of this evil is occurring, does God really exist? If God does exist, does he have control? Every time we ask these questions, we are revealing that there are times where we feel abandoned by God, whether we want to admit it in those terms or not. Every time 
we say, how could God let this happen? What really lies there is, does God really exist? Does God really love me? Maybe the deists are right. Deism is the worldview that says that there is a God that created everything, but once he created it and once he started the world spinning, he stepped aside and just watches and lets, lets happen what will happen. That's deism. In fact, there are many of the founding fathers that have been attributed as being deists. There is a creator, Ben Franklin, has been quoted as saying, deism is the only way for me. It's a clockwork God. God created the clock, set the parts in motion, and then steps aside and watches. That's at the heart of these questions. Why doesn't God intervene? If God loves us, why doesn't he stop this? If God really exists, why does he let Muslim terrorists cut heads off of his people? If God really exists, why does he let two-year-olds get cancer? If God really exists, why does he let husbands beat their wives? Why doesn't he intervene and do something? What we learn through Exodus is that God is always with us and in control even when it seems like he's not. God is always with us and he is always in control even when it seems like he is not. Because this is what I find interesting. There are a lot of scholars that note the apparent absence of God from in chapters 1 and chapter 2. In fact, as you read chapter 2, God is less present in it than he is in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we only see it a few times, and all of those are kind of in a passing manner. It's not God intervening to save his people. It's just God is there. But what's really interesting is even in chapter 1, we see hints and reminders of God's presence in his work. We see it in the first six words of chapter 1. It's pointed out that the first six words are an exact repetition of the words in Genesis 46, verse 8. Genesis 46, verse 8 is when the Israelites, all 70 of them, really big nation right there, all 70 people, that'd be us, are journeying to Egypt and, and I can't help but think that this is a foreshadow, it's a hint of what's to come. Because what we see is God delivered them to Egypt in order to save them from the famine. Which hints at the fact that he's going to deliver them from Egypt to save them from the Pharaoh. Here's what I find is really interesting if you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. I was just going to read this, but I really want you to read this with me. Genesis chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 13 and 14. God is talking to Abraham here. He's making his covenant with Abram. And this is what we read. I think I typed that wrong. 
Oh, no, it is. 13 and 14. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. When God is making his covenant with Abraham to make him have numerous offspring as numerable as the sand on the seashore, he tells them that Egypt is going to happen. That's what he's saying right here. In Genesis 15, your offspring are going to be slaves in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. But then they will come out with great possessions. Do you remember what happens after the Passover? After the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians want them gone so bad that they give them stuff to send them on their way. They give them gold and money and possessions to get them to come out. God said in Genesis 15 when he's talking to Abram, he hasn't even changed his name to Abraham yet. He tells him that this is going to happen. And so I can't help but look at that connection from Exodus 1-1 to Genesis 46 with Israel going to Egypt and see that God's saying, I delivered you then and I'm going to deliver you now. I think another hinting of God's presence and God's action is the fact that every time they are faithful, God blesses them through multiplying. Every time they are oppressed, or every time they're faithful to disobeying Pharaoh in order to not commit murder, God increases their offspring. Another connection that is interesting is that the Nile is the source of life for the Egyptians. It is the water source that waters their fields. It's where they get their water. But Pharaoh made it a source of death for Israel. Yet God uses it through Moses' mom and sister as a source of life for the deliverer of Israel. It was a source of salvation for Moses. There's a lot of parallels there to Noah and the flood. In fact, the word, that's next week, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. And then we'll see later that the sea is a source of life for Israel, but it's going to be the source of death for the Egyptian army. And so we keep seeing these hints, even throughout chapter 1, of God saying, you don't sense it. You don't notice it. It doesn't seem like it, but I am with you. And I am in control. We see that in our own lives as well. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, every time you take communion, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Communion is one of those reminders that we have that Jesus is going to fulfill his promise. It's one of those reminders we have that God is with us and God is going to be coming back and God is in control. Baptism is one of those reminders. Everything that the New Testament says about baptism Paul says that when we are baptized, we are raised to new life with Christ already. We're already a new creation. We're already anticipating his return and the the completed act of God. Those chance encounters we have with people that encourage us and spur us along 
when we're discouraged. I think those are hints of God's presence and his love and his care for us. And the fact that we know what's coming in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says we mourn, but we don't mourn like those without hope because we know what is coming. We mourn differently. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says Christ has been raised from the dead. And because Christ has been raised from the dead, we know that we too will be raised from the dead. God is in control. And so the reality is that God is always with us and he's always in control, even when it seems like he's not. The question that you have to ask yourself, though, is, is this truth enough for you? Does that truth satisfy your struggles? Is it really enough to believe that God is with you? Or maybe to put it this way, Are you willing to worship a God who may allow you to live with zero political freedom? Are you willing to worship a God that may allow you in your lifetime to become slaves and to be political captives and not have a freedom to come worship and publicize, hey, we're going to be worshiping without the fear of losing your life? Is that truth enough? If you were told that it is no longer legal to be a Christian and you can be jailed and you can be killed and you can watch your children and your grandchildren be killed for your faith, would you still trust that God's with you and in control? Or would that be enough for you to say, I'm done, no more? What about for 400 years? If God allowed that to go on for 400 years. Because remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7, it says that Moses was 120 years old when he died. Israel doesn't enter the promised land until after Moses dies. Which means from Exodus 1 to the entrance of the promised land is at least 120 years. We're still 120 years away from the promised land, but God is saying, I'm with you. I'm in control. Is it enough? Peter Enns puts it this way. He says, even if God's people today, like the Israelites in Exodus 1, were to suffer inhumane treatment at the hands of the government, the big picture should not be lost. It is maintaining this big picture that is the mark of a mature Christian life. We doubt and we struggle, but we trust God. Things are not the way that they ought to be, but we rest in God's promises. We have faith. The question is, do you have enough faith to be persecuted? to not have the freedom to get in your car and drive to a church building in the middle of a cornfield without the fear of something happening to you. God is always with us and always in control, even when it seems like he's not. And when we keep this perspective, 
we keep our hope. See, that's the issue is that when we lose this perspective and we begin to feel abandoned by God and we begin to let Satan speak that doubt and we don't address that doubt and we start losing our faith, we lose our hope. Our hope is in the promise that God is with us and that God is in control and that God really does love us and that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And our hope enables our witness. That's why Peter says, always be ready to explain the hope that you have when people ask. He assumes that people will see your hope. But when we lose perspective and we begin to buy into that abandonment, we lose our hope. And our hope or our lack thereof sets the tone for our attitude. We will either be full of joy and hope or we will be sour, bitter people. And so, are you going to be full of hope or are you going to live your life sour and bitter, buying into this idea that God has abandoned you? Because it has a direct impact on the way that you witness to people. I really think it has a direct impact on your happiness, too. It's hard to be happy and joyful and pleased in life when we're sour and bitter because we feel like God doesn't love us. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. But that's the attitude that we begin to have when we lose perspective of the fact that God is with us and God is in control even when it seems like he's not. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truths and the promises that you give us and that you remind us of through your word. I pray that as we study through the book of Exodus, we would see your love and your presence, that we would see what it is that you reveal about yourself to us. Use this study through Exodus to make us look more like Jesus. Help us to keep our hope so that we can explain that hope to those around us. And maybe, maybe that will plant the seed that they need to begin to glorify you and follow you as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.